To us, Mr. Bond, we are the best. There's a useful four-letter word, and you're full of it. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. You are very suspicious, Mr. Bond. Oh, I find I live much longer that way. Today, we have a license to spill. So, the following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Bond, what do you think you're doing? Keeping the British hand up, sir. Yes, well, you wouldn't have a smaller piece of thread than that, would you? Curious, somebody seems to have stuck a knife in my wallet. They missed you. What a pity. In anticipation of the latest James Bond release, No Time to Die, agents Galley and Matt will be looking back at all seven films starring Sir Roger Moore. In my country, Major, the condemned man is usually allowed a final request. Granted. Let's get out of these wet things. Starting with Live and Let Die, and ending with A View to a Kill. My God, what's Bond doing? I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. Hello and welcome to the Rewire Movie Podcast. It's the podcaster who comes before the kill. The man with the stolen puns. It's Gally in Glasgow. All those feathers and he still can't fly. It's Matt in South Korea. Oh, welcome back listeners and welcome back Matt. It's me and you again and we are doing something slightly different today. We are not focusing on one film. We're focusing on an era. So, Matt, why don't you explain to the listeners exactly what we're doing? Well, we're going to take a very personal look at the Roger Moore era of James Bond films. He made seven. Uh, I was born uh, into these films. I was born in 82. So these films have been around me all of my life. Childhood staple. Forever on UK terrestrial TV. Whether it's a Boxing Day or a New Year's Day, there's always a, a jaunt with Sir Rog. So... Uh, I don't know about you, but it wasn't even necessary for me to own them. Uh, I, it was just like, oh, Octopussy's on again. I have to watch it or Moonraker's on Christmas Day. I'm going to watch it then. I, I, did you ever buy any of these? No, no, for the very reason. I know when, um, when ITV lost the rights, uh, God, it would have been maybe even what a decade ago now might have even been maybe not as long as that, but I remember when it suddenly Saturdays were no longer just if you had nothing to watch, you could default to whatever Bond was on ITV2. Um, you know, it's a bit like now at the weekend. I mean, I'm a huge Columbo fan, but I own all of them. Yet, I'd never actually open them up because luckily 5USA will play Columbo throughout the day on UK Terrestrial every Saturday and every Sunday. And that used to be the same for, for the Bonds. You know, it wasn't necessarily always the Roger Moores. They would just go through the gambit. And then I remember when they would do special series like ICV are going to go through every single Bond. It's like, you do it every week. It's like the, <laughs> it's like the, if, if anyone in the UK knows like the DFS carpet sale that ends on Sunday that starts again <laughs> on Monday. So yeah, I do. I definitely remember it, Matt. Um, vivid, yeah. vivid memories of watching, uh, watching them with my dad, uh, in the weekend when there was nothing else to watch. Yeah. Well, I remember being in Woolworths once upon a time and they had a buy one, get one free and we got 
a few VHS tapes around that time. I remember getting uh, Dr. No and From Russia With Love for my dad because he's into the early Bonds. He's a, a Connery fan, I think, and particularly those early installments. And I got, I think, Moonraker and A View to a Kill for myself. So I, I was always into the Moors. And then after that, they brought out some double disc editions on DVD, which had Roger Moore commentaries. And, and that was just it for me. That was the greatest thing. Every single one he says, this isn't much a commentary as a, a reminiscing about uh, the locations. And he talks about the actors and where they went. And, and I think it's just, uh, it gives him a license to stray. So he's like, um, if you listen to his uh, autobiography as well, uh, that, that he reads himself, uh, I think it's called My Word is My Bond, I think. And uh, that's that's particularly good. Uh, so I, I collected all of the more ones and just ignored the the rest. And then just before I came to Korea, I got the the Bond 50 uh, Blu-ray set, which was really, really great. Good transfers. And it had all the commentaries ported over from the previous editions. So um, I, I, I the idea behind doing this, I wrote an essay a while ago. So this is kind of a podcasty version of, of a Roger Moore uh, piece that I wrote. And uh, I wanted to address the labels that have been assigned to him, really. Some of them unfairly and some of them probably more accurate. But um, I do want to try and avoid a lot of trivia because there's so many Bond podcasts out there that focus on those things. We're not a trivia podcast, really. And uh, I'm not a Bond aficionado, I wouldn't claim to be, but I, I am partial to the Moore era. So this is more of a personal view of the of the more bonds but touching on the franchise a little bit especially with uh, no time to die coming up so soon just from my perspective matt i am i'm entering the roger moore era of bond with a healthy dose of skepticism so listeners i am not a a huge bond fan i'll get into uh my experiences with the series um in a few moments but from my understanding uh a lot of bond fanatics and those casual viewers kind of Deem the Roger Moore Bond as quite derided, and especially since Daniel Craig's taken over the role, that's kind of fed mm. more oxygen to the idea that you know gadgets, girls, and guns with a wry playboy smile should remain in the past. And then you know you on top of that, you have the uh, you know the huge success of Austin Powers. So yes. there's there's a lot there's a lot of i wouldn't even say like misconceptions it's just it's very easy to have a narrative that is oh he's that bond you know the one that looks a bit like austin powers <laughs> yeah I, I watched a view to a kill uh just moments before recording and i got to the scene where uh he meets uh paula ivanova i think she's called and she is uh, a lot of vagina it's exactly <laughs> yeah. the same thing it's the uh the hot tub and it's all, you know, the, uh, it, it's very, it, once you spoof a film and we've talked about it before, I think we talked about it in Young Guns where, uh, Emilio Estevez was struggling after National Lampoons to, to be taken seriously. This is the spoof of an entire franchise. So how, how can you come back from that? And the Daniel Craig stuff, I think is just part of the dark origin trend that's happening, uh, and it is going to be a very tough one for them to follow, I think, when he when he quits, because it's going to be like Batman. I think following Nolan's Batman has been a real 
issue for them. And uh, I, I feel like following Craig is going to be really tricky. It's hard to say where they're going to take it next. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Uh, I totally agree. Um, Matt, what you've kind of touched upon it, but what were your, what are your kind of first experiences then? Um, and as far as, as, as far as the Bond franchise, so you've mentioned the more, but, um, you know, with the series and, and, and how do you feel about that No Time to Die installment, which, you know, comes out, you know, as the time of recording in a week's time? Yeah. Oh, we get it a day before England. I think for the first time in history, Korea gets Bond a day before the UK. So, but it's three hours long. So if I go after work, we're going to be, we're going to be out till about one, but you know, it might be worth it. I hope. Uh, I'm a fan of Skyfall. I'm a fan of, uh, Casino Royale. I think they're two of the two really well put together movies. And I am a fan of Craig. I think after more, he's my second favorite Bond. I remember seeing the first image of him coming out of the, the water, aping the, uh, Ursula Andress Dr. No exit. Uh, I think Halle Berry did it too. Uh, yeah. Less said about yeah. Jinx. <laughs> Yeah. But when I saw that, I thought, I don't want an incredible Hulk bond. He's, he's wider than he is tall. It was just peculiar. I didn't really want to accept it. But once, once I saw Casino Royale, I could see exactly where they were going with it. And it's very of the time. And that, that's a terrific, terrific film. I think very rewatchable. Uh, so I'm, yeah, I'm set up for the new one. Um, I think I've talked to a few people leading up to this part about who their favorite bonds are. And nine times out of 10, the old adage is true. It's the first actor you see in the role that you kind of hook into. So your age kind of dictates often who your favorite Bond is. Um, as a child of the 80s, Moore was the guy that was always in the tuxedo. Um, so again, it's like, like the saying almost famous about your favorite music choosing you. Uh, like your, your Bond kind of picks you too. So. Um, on another personal note, uh, we nearly made this more specifically about the man with the golden gun because that has a big connection to my family. My uncle moved to Hong Kong when he was 21 and we've enjoyed family holidays there over the years. So we've visited the peninsula, uh, with the green Rolls Royces. Uh, we, we didn't stay there. <laughs> it was far too expensive, but we had a, we had a high tea there one afternoon. Um, we've been on the ferry. We've, uh, you know, had the street food and like the sights and the smells of, of, uh, Golden Gun all come flooding back when I watch it. And then in 2010, me and my mum, my dad and my cousin Marcus went to James Bond Island, which was Scaramanga's lair. And, uh, we had some pictures taken there. So you can, you can have a look at that on the, uh, on the rewind blog. Uh, we watched Golden Gun the night before we went and, uh, just kind of experienced that. Um, so that's on a personal note, Golden Gun really hooked me into, to more in particular, but it's not one of the best Bond films, I don't think, but it's, it's certainly one of my favorites. Well, I'm just glad you didn't say it's personal to you because you also have a suspicious third nipple. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> a superfluous papilla or whatever. It is. I swear when I'm watching it again, that they chucked a little <laughs> hair coming out of it as well. Just a little, just one <laughs> strand coming out of that third nipple. Absolutely mm. disgusting. How about you? What are your early experiences with Bond? And is it true that the first Bond you see is your favorite? This is going to be the first 
of many sexual innuendos that I drop in. <laughs> but I, I came to Bond late. It's very appropriate for this episode. It really is. I mentioned before about watching um, watching it with my dad Saturday, Sunday afternoons. And one of the reasons for that is my dad is is Greek, his English and his grasp of the English language is, is good. But, um, you know, films in particular, uh, dialect and uh, cadences sometimes can be quite difficult for him to pick up. The beauty of a Bond film, no matter what era really, is that you can pretty much follow it from, you know, start to finish. Even if the plots themselves make zero sense, because it's quite set piece driven, you know, you can really enjoy them as just action films. Uh, and pl- there's plenty of mugging going on. So again, you can read that without necessarily. Yeah, it's very visual. Yeah. They're films that you can watch on mute, essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, uh, so we, I spent a lot of time doing that. Uh, and then, you know, I think for a lot of people of probably my age, GoldenEye came out and then it was accompanied mm. by the very, very good N64 game, which oh, I haven't yeah. played since I was a teen. So I don't know if it still holds up, but that game then got me into kind of the Bond canon and all the iconography that comes with it because I was, you know, I was interested in who this odd job was and who Jaws was. And so I kind of went back and watched them um a little bit more deeply as opposed to kind of passively. And then when we went to film school, this is when it really kind of transcended for me. Um I really started to appreciate what James Bond represented as a global brand and as an internationally recognized British institution, you know, like the BBC. So mm. so to my mind now I'm I'm a Bond fan partly because I think that Bond means so much to the British film industry. And, and, and the knock on effect of a, of the successes is that we are able to champion young British filmmakers in making, making films that will, you know, get some exposure. And, and the other thing that I recognized, and this is, this is really now in this kind of era of Marvel and DC and streaming services is that Bond generates debate. So yeah. whether it be who will play Bond, who's going to be the Bond girl, who's the villain. Who's written the theme song? Is the theme song any good? All of this stuff, you know, where does it rank in the series? What locations right. are they shooting at? See, that might seem superfluous, but Bond has been doing that since the sixties. And, and actually, if you track like all the major IPs and all the major franchises, they're all influenced by James Bond because they wish to all have the same kind of content that is generated from it, you know, articles, uh, discussions. You know, people have got YouTube channels and podcasts now. You, you mentioned right. it before. There are dedicated podcasts to James Bond because every three or four years there will be a new iteration and a long may it continue. So yeah, that's mm. my, that's my little blurb, but I'm now like a, a fan. I'm not probably as deep as, as some of those aficionados that you mentioned, but I am a mm. champion of it and I'm really looking forward to seeing No Time to Die. I just hope that, um, you know, the delays don't mean that the, the hype will outstrip what we end up with. Would you like to discuss the era or the eras of, uh, Moore as Bond? I've, uh, come up with, well, I haven't really come up with them, but there, there's three directors that worked with him during the, his period as Bond. Uh, Guy Hamilton was the first director. <laughs> he made Live and Let Die in uh, 1973 and The Man with the Golden Gun in 74. Well, let's let's start there then. Let's start with how do you take over, you know, you've mentioned it before, Daniel Craig, how do you replace Craig? Well, the Bond producers 
they really struggled post Connery, and there was a bit, there's a bit of there's a bit of back and forth and a little bit of nonsense going on. So let's let's talk about that initial two pictures of Moore. Mm, well, Moore to me, I, I think there's a chance of him getting it before Connery, if the, if I'm remembering right. But um, Connery ended up getting it ahead of him, uh, so he was always in the picture. Um, so to me, Roger exemplifies the charm and the charisma and this comedic timing that you need. He's got a lot. He's, he's very good with the wisecracks. Um, I mean, of course he made uh, the saint, which kind of helped cue up the, this style of, of, of what he brought to the role. Okay, Matt. Well, why don't you remind me and our listeners of the plot to Roger Moore's first film, live and let die. Well, these are very brief. They're not as long as my war and peace ones that I usually do. Uh, it's kind of known now as the black exploitation bond. Uh, when three agents are rubbed out, Bond heads to NYC to investigate foreign minister and island diplomat Dr. Kananga's potential involvement, meeting his burly hook-handed henchman Teehee and Solitaire, a tarot-reading seer whose virginal powers 007 inevitably sexes away. Uh, Bond's San Monique Island exploits include uncovering a heroin smuggling front, flame-grilling a venomous snake, using deodorant and a cigar, enduring the dreadful Rosie Carver's porno acting, a spot of hang gliding, crocodile stepping stones, and witnessing Yafet Koto in the worst makeup disguise since Color of Night as gangster <laughs> Mr. Big. And it concludes with, uh, surprise, surprise, another Bond train scuffle. Uh, the sheer magnetism of Miss Caruso and maybe the best ever Morris Binder opening credit sequence and title song. I found it fascinating because one of the things that, that Bond, uh, to me has, has always achieved is the pre credit sequence. And, yeah. um, and stay, stay with me because I'll probably harp on about it in a future movie that we're going to talk about. But to my mind, it remind now, if you wanted a good comparison, although now it's starting to feel like it's also aged out, is the Simpsons have always managed to do it. Right. Which is a, a separate piece of action or a separate kind of storyline that is somewhat tangentially linked or sets up your central idea, but it gives you an excuse to do a balls to the wall set piece. What I found interesting with Live and Let Die is that it doesn't. Um, the set piece no. is, the, is the funeral. Uh, gala, which is, you know, a recurring mm-hmm. motif. We see it and we understand as an audience member what it represents as it goes through the, the plot. Mm. But I found it very strange that when you're going to start with a new era of Bond, that they don't come out the gate with a strong action sequence. Yeah. And that, that's, that was, that felt kind of odd to me. But then, you know, you mentioned it, black exploitation. The other one is this felt very French connection. So uh, there was a part of me that was like, well, are they stripping Bond right back? And they, they're trying to make him, uh, like Popeye, uh, boil in, uh, in French connection where he's, right, he's getting, right. he's getting down to the streets. He's at street level. And this is going to be a bond where the danger is the urban environment. That's what it felt like. Yeah. I mean, the opening sequences are really interesting. I did a, a kind of a little analysis of the, uh, the tropes that make up these 
movies and uh, the categories I came up with were pre-title action sequence, general storyline and scripting, that includes wisecracks, theme song and opening title sequence, villains and henchmen, Bond girls, and then Moore's general performance as Bond. I'll get into which, what the ranking, what my personal ranking came to a bit later. But if you look at the pre-title sequences, I'm more keen on the ones that focus on Bond himself. Because there, there are a couple where he doesn't feature at all. Man with the Golden Gun, for example. He's there as a waxwork, but he's not actually in the Scaramanga funhouse just yet. It's, uh, uh, it's actually a friend of the show, uh, <laughs> mean old bastard from, uh, from dusk till dawn. The guy that goes to the island to, to battle Scaramanga is the, uh, the guy that Clooney talks to, uh, oh, in the motel, <laughs> in the motel where he's banging his bell. Um, so yeah, I've, I've scored the ones with more in a little higher. I really like the Moonraker opening with the, there's a skydive there, very point break before point break came along. Um, yeah, and uh, I, I guess uh, Spy Who Loved Me is particularly good because that one features more very heavily. And, and any fans of Alan Partridge will know uh, exactly how that one goes down. Well, you, uh, you, you've, you've kind of taken my sandwich and I'm going to eat it right now. <laughs> so I mentioned about a future movie. To my very uneducated Bond eyes, The Spy Who Loved Me is the, is the one that quintessentially sums up the Moore era. Mm. It's witty. It's fun. I mean, yeah, someone does get like shot in the chest. Um, but it's got the iconography. That's a very violent death. Strom- Stromberg's death is very. Yeah, it's very. Right. Um, but it ends on a punchline. And that is yeah. to me, that is the, the, the more era is, yeah. you know, whatever happens before someone getting violently shot with a flare via a ski. Um, yeah. it doesn't matter because the punchline will transcend and you will not dwell. And that's, yeah. that to me was the, the strongest one. Once we get like chronologically to that, I've got more on Spy Who Loved Me, but we should do uh, uh, Live and Let Die a bit more, shouldn't we? We set that one up. We should. Uh, let's, we should. This one kind of is interesting. It's really flashy. Uh, it, it's uh, I, I really like the theme song. I think Paul McCartney and Wings did a did a really good job with that. That's along with uh, the Spy Who Loved Me's theme. Nobody does it better. I think they're probably the best two songs, and they result in really strong opening sequences too um we've mentioned a lot of racial stereotypes and uh you know we're in voodoo land and there's fire swinging and contortionists and then there's all the the right on brother quotes mm. and pimps and prostitutes and jive talking and all this stuff I and mean, it's very of the time but it, it when you watch it it's it's a bit tricky in places to to get through i thought maybe and again, I said I was coming in with a bit of skepticism and that was one of them. You know, the era mm. would, would my 2021 sensibilities feel sort of attacked to the point where I ended up getting kind of triggered by the movies. The one thing I would say about a lot of live and let die is it didn't feel mean spirited. 
Does mm. that make sense? And yep. obviously, here I am, a uh, a white British bloke. So clearly, you know, I will be less triggered anyway, um, because it's not me that's necessarily being sort of not attacked, but is up for possibly ridicule. But I felt of the era and it felt Hmm. like a, a kind of an authentic movie depiction of black exploitation. And actually, if you look at the characters, the only thing that I would say is that they probably could have done with one or two more characters of color that were on Bond's side. So luckily Mm -hmm. you've got the guy in the boat, so not everyone's yep. in on it because that was the only thing where you would kind of be like, okay, is this sort of leaning towards every single person of color is part right. of the villainous plan? And, and, and that, that only comes into play when you think about this, what appear to be civilians when they're covering up the kills in, um, hmm. in the city, which I thought was super inventive. I mean, I actually love that line when it's like, whose funeral is it? Yours. Yours. I was like, that is great. That yeah. is, that is, that is, that is such a, that's such a great line and such yeah. a great death. And I love the way the coffin comes up and then, you know, nice. It's a gadget in a way. They're chucking a it's gadget. It's a gadget. In yeah. But, um, but that was, that was the only thing. And actually the most egregious character. And again, I'm not from the South. So this isn't me being like, well, it's the white character that gets the worst yeah. is JW Pepper, who. Oh, no. What did, I mean, Guy Hamilton must have had a run in with some Southern rube because this joke is <laughs> so obnoxious. It's, so, yeah. it's outrageous. I mean, we're hoping he's there to poke fun at people with those kind of vocabularies and beliefs and, uh, you know, but I, I think you're right about them. They, they tried to cast a variety of black actors as Bond aides and CIA agents and it, which is, has happened less and less over the years, particularly there's not really too much in the Bond films for people of color but um i I think you're probably right in that it's innocent in the sense that um it's looking at black exploitation films rather than focusing on you know african-americans in in general but who are we to to stick up for a lot of this this stuff it's probably a very difficult watch for some people but um hope i mean i can i can see the innocence in it and the naivety and uh but un- unfortunately you could also describe some of it as ignorance but yeah we, we're hoping that that pepper is there to to spoof those kinds of people not to give them a forum okay they slightly pull their punches it's not quite captain kirk in star trek but you know roger does get with a person of color it yeah. doesn't help that she's a double agent um i would have preferred it if she was just a cia agent and she hadn't been Co-opted by uh, Katanga. Is it Katanga? Kananga. Is Kananga. Right, Kananga. Yeah. Apologies. Um, listen, I'm just going to call him Yafet because it's Yafet, Yafet isn't yeah. it? Let's be fair. Let's be fair. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that would have probably helped if she was uh, a, a, a true ally of Bond. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. slightly pull their punches, but, you know, he, he sleeps with her in a more way, which is... <laughs> a little bit of innuendo, a slight, um, a slight kiss and cut to it's already happened. But he kind of uses her fear, doesn't he? He, he? Cause she's terrified that she's been cursed by the Baron Samady hat. It's one of Moore's, it's one of Moore's great traits is that he will find the weakness in the woman. I mean, look <laughs> oh, no. at, look at poor Jane Seymour. The tarot card says it. I can't mm. help it. We're going to have to just do this. And he recklessly just lets all those cards tumble. She could have seen them. That to me is the, the fun element that Moore brings mm. to it. And, you know, we mentioned before about how do you go from Sean Connery's super iconic bond where he's a, he's a bit of a bad boy uh, and a bit of an outlaw whereas mm. Moore's less alpha 
a more playboy debonair you know there's a there's a there's an there's a sense of kind of regal elegance about him but actually behind all of that is someone who's just a little bit of a cheeky chap and i quite liked that about this this mm-hmm. version of Bond, it's it's frivolous fun, but what the one thing that no never gets lingered on in any of these more films that we'll talk about is there's no real consequence, really. Like no. Even death is sort of inconsequential. That the only time I would I wouldn't dispute that at all, but the only time you could mention that he has a moment is in the Spy Who Loved Me, where he is talking to uh, Anya Amasova, I think. Uh, triple x at the triple x uh, at, the, yep. at the bar and she knows what he's drinking and he knows what she's drinking yeah ahead of them ordering and there's a moment where she has she mentions his the, the death of bond's wife which is a callback to on a majesty's late- secret service which has the very the the, the lazenby that has the really downer ending um and there's a moment there where he turns very cold and he gets very stern and he walks away from her in a moment where he would usually have been seducing the bond girl he just walks right away so you're absolutely right, apart from, you know, that's that's the exception that proves it, really, I guess. Commander James Bond, recruited to the British Secret Service from the Royal Navy, licensed to kill, and has done so on numerous occasions. Many lady friends, but married only once. Wife killed... All right, and... you've made your point. You're sensitive, Mr. Bond. About certain things, yes. Now, if you'll excuse me... Tragically, I have a previous engagement. Happily enough, so do I. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. Well, let's say au revoir. I have the oddest feeling we'll be meeting again sometime. I guess it does, but one of the, one of the things that does highlight is that by that point in his run, I think he's at his most comfortable. Mm. So in this one, Live and Let Die, they really don't want to linger on any of that. And right. that's why it feels like such a fun, almost Saturday serial vibe mm. which is he's moving from location to location the one thing i would say is the i love the plot which is just the, the villainous plot of yafet koto is to just give people free heroin uh, because he, he just, and, and really all he wants to do is he wants, wants to free he wants to fuck his competitors by just making the market uh complete yeah. like taking the taking the bottom out of the market and it's like yeah. that's all he wants to do uh mm. you know if he hadn't killed all those uh those spies then Bond wouldn't have even got anywhere near him. Yeah, that's so, how you do it. Get, uh, him, get him hooked. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's almost so, like the plot in, uh, in Moonwalker with, uh, which, uh, Joe yeah, Pesci it has. Is. It's exactly the same. Do you want to do anything else on Live and Let Die or shall we move on to the next Guy Hamilton? Actually, one thing I did want to, I did note in that first one. And, and actually it's probably something you can, you can stick on Roger Moore throughout. No real hand to hand physical hmm. action. I think Guy Hamilton's not comfortable shooting it, and I mm-hmm. don't think Moore was. So it's it's all vehicle based. That's yeah. the French Connection piece, you know. Right. It's on it's on the road, it's on the water, and there's some really really fun stunt work going on. I love when um, when the when the guys who are chasing Bond end up in someone's some rich guy's pool. Right, and right. that's again, it, it's a great little gag when they're just looking looking around. They're like, damn. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple where he beats up two, he, he doesn't really beat them up, but he fights two guys. He brings down like a, a, a ladder from a fire escape and knocks that into. Oh one yeah, that was a good, yeah, very that was short nice one. though. And then there's, there's one bit at the, I'm not disputing, but there's one bit at the end where, uh, Kananga has that weird 
knife moment and they have a very very brief tussle you know we just come off deep blue sea and i didn't realize i was going to be watching so many shark movies in this roger moore era they they love a shark i mean don't get me wrong jaws was successful but my god does every villain have a shark it's crazy (laughs) with freaking laser beams attached to their heads uh so the next one in the guy hamilton uh era is uh the man with the golden gun which is the second outing uh, as Bond. We should mention, by the way, when uh, in Live and Let Die, Moore is 45 years old already. Um, there's a section later uh, where we can talk about his Jerry action. Um, but uh, yeah, he's, he's still pretty young here, 46 years old. Here's a brief synopsis of that one. When Bond receives a golden bullet with his name on it, all signs point to Francisco Scaramanga, the man with the golden gun and his beautiful lady friend. Miss Andrea Anders. Bond's adventures take him to Macau, Hong Kong, and Thailand in search of British scientist Gibson's Solex Agitator, a device capable of solving the energy crisis. Bond, unfortunately and inexplicably, re-encounters fat American racist J.W. Pepper. (sighs) He throws a Thai boy in a dirty river, sticks on a fake third nipple, almost skinny dips with Chew Me, and battles an entire karate school. On Scaramanga's Island, 007 negotiates the assassin's deadly funhouse, kills Scaramanga, rescues the bikini-clad Brit Eklund, and ties the bottle-hoying, short-statured knick-knack to the mast of a junk in a lobster cage, but only after whacking him with broken chair legs. Mm. It's interesting, Matt. The man with the golden gun felt like the one that if you are going to get triggered, this will probably be the one. <laughs> because the only thing you can say yeah. is that, that this one is equal opportunities. Like they, everyone gets it pretty much. Yeah. Everybody. J.W. Pepper is let off the lead. Uh, so I, I don't know why he's there. We, we mentioned how ignorant he is. Why on earth he's in Thailand as a tourist? But uh, every everyone's a target. So if you're blonde, welcome to the party. If you're of Thai descent, welcome to the party. If you're a person of a certain height, welcome to the party. Yeah. And if you've got yeah. a third nipple, um, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's all there, isn't it? I mean, I, yeah. I wrote down uh, one thing I didn't mention with Live and Let Die. And actually what I think the Moore era really signified the step change in where Bond as a series was, you know, initially as a trendsetter, now as a very much a follower of trends. So, you know, we, we taught live and let die is black exploitation and French connection. The man with the golden gun is in absolutely got to be in response to enter the dragon. I mean, why he randomly mm-hmm. just goes to a karate school and starts fighting. <laughs> yeah. It has absolutely no bearing on anything, but it's there. And then it gets, and then it gets dropped, but it just felt like, right, we need bond to be doing some martial arts and god bless roger moore i mean actually i thought he held he holds his own just about but it's right. it's so random that there's a bow they do the double bow and just as he takes his eyes off <laughs> off, off bond he just gives him a kick so it's it's a bit cheeky it's almost uh there's a lot of stuff that i wanted to talk about when we get to octopussy which is like the parallels between indie and bond mm-hmm. and there's one here that's almost equivalent to to shooting the guy who does all the sword tricks the yep. way uh indy just takes him out um in, in a humorous very quick way after a big build-up 
So I think they're each taking cues from from one another because if you look at the years of the movies when they were released, like Temple of Doom and uh, Octopussy, uh, yeah, you can draw some parallels there, but we can we can get to it. This one's quite sacred to me. Uh, <laughs> this is the last hurrah for, for Saltzman and Broccoli, the producers, who had a bit of a falling out around this time. It's the last one they did together. Uh, so... This is the one that I'd, I'd like to watch on a Sunday afternoon growing up. This is the, the one I always return to. And again, I have personal ties to it. Um, how did you feel about this one? Look, looking back at. Well, I didn't know that. Uh, as I say, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a trivia buff when it comes down to Bond, but I find it interesting that mm. you say that this is where the, the, the producers that had helmed this series for so long, uh, so synonymous with it had fallen out because it does feel like a conflicted movie. Uh, and it's plotting. Mm. So I don't know if it had any bearing because I really like the central conceit that essentially Scaramanga is the other side of James Bond, uh, yes. almost like a doppelganger. Um, yeah. you know, somebody who you could look at as saying, well, if Bond, instead of Honor Majesty's Secret Service actually became a gun for hire, then he would become Scaramanga. And, you know, I don't think it's any coincidence that they get Christopher Lee, someone of a similar age, you know, they don't go for somebody mm-hmm. who's young and, and, and sort of thrifty. Um, but, but you mentioned Moore's age. And I mm-hmm. thought, I think one of the things that Moore manages to do in these early films is really just completely negate his actual age by, you know, somehow reversing his metabolic age. You know, he's useful. He's exuberant. Uh, he's got a real energy and an effervescence for life. And you kind of get that sense. Like he's thoroughly enjoying himself, which means yeah. I shave about 10 years off his actual age. And and right. despite, you know, enough fake tan and a bit of makeup, but I, I go with it completely. Um, so I have no issue whatsoever with his look and how old he is because mm-hmm. I think he carries himself like a younger man. The only time I noticed was Moonraker. That's, that's the first time it cropped up to me. Uh, but I think that that exuberance is still there, but you, you need a hell of a lot of exuberance by the time, uh, <laughs> for your eyes only and the John Glenn pictures that the last three did. So, but he tries, he tries. He thinks I'm still a virgin. Yes. Well, you get your clothes on. I'll buy you an ice cream. But where the conflict in the story comes is this, kind of B plot about solar power, because I think that is the weakest part. It really is. It's the weakest part of the film. Like it to to the point where it kind of frustrated me that they even bothered because what it does is it completely undercuts the Scaramanga death as well. Cause you're just like, Mm. well, that's one ending. Then you have another ending, which is them trying to stop the Island from, or get out, and stop the island from blowing yeah. up because of this Solex. And you have a third ending with Nick Knack trying to kill him. So yeah. it just kind of means that it, it reduces Scaramanga. Yeah, it, re- it really does. It should end on that high of Bond taking out Scaramanga. But so something, something was amiss. And I do wonder if it was the producers that are at each other's necks at that point. And maybe you could see the, where each one brought a slightly different flavor to, yeah. to Bond. One going for great villain one going for great villainous plots and and world ending stakes and maybe that's and actually when you say world ending it was solely it was trying to get rid of uh fossil fuels wasn't he so in the end it was scaramanga was pretty much a good guy (laughs) (laughs) but but but, you know it is what it is um you know but but that that was that that felt 
like at odds with each other. And the other bit as well, it's a sin. It's an utter, utter sin. For my mind, probably the best stunt in any Bond. Oh, you don't like the whistle? No, the penny whistle. What the hell is that doing there? I actually forgot that it was there. So when I watched it, I was like, oh, why am I now being distracted by this penny whistle instead of just Mm. being in you know, slack-jawed or It should have been the Bond cue right over that. Imagine that over that stunt. And it would have been top three, top five Bond stunts ever. Uh, it's, it's an incredible stunt. I remember the behind the scenes on the DVD of that. If anyone's going to get it and, and rewatch it, cause it's, uh, it's terrific how they did it. I think it was one take and then they asked for another one and they said, no, I'm not doing it again. I can't remember, but I, I think it was one. Um, but yeah, Penny Whistle is a sin. It, it's a sin. <laughs> You're right. What are your thoughts? So we didn't, we, we didn't, we touched upon it in Live and Let Die, but the Bond girls, namely Britt Ackland, cause this, this wasn't a tough one. Because she is, she is written horrendously. So if we're going to go into Austin Powers territory, this is probably the Bond girl. Like she is, she's, she, she is the one who is the constant inciting incidents. So every time the plot could just stop, don't worry, Britt Atlinger is going to, you know, move a, move a panel with her ass. It's just, yeah, I'll get trapped in the boot of a flying car. I found it to be the one where, you know, if you're thinking about, female characters and where the female mm-hmm. mo- uh, the feminist movement was that this is almost like put them back in their place kind of bond it, it, i know that this one's dear to your heart but it, i could see the problems <laughs> with this one more clearly than i could with live and let mm. die live and let die felt like it was quite progressive because as i say we're dealing with roger moore white british upper class stiff um hanging around in an area that feels very very alien to him and and bring in that to audiences you know this is pre-internet so you would be watching this as a as a uk uh sort of cinema goer going wow i've never seen this um whereas this felt like a kind of almost carry on movie and i didn't like it yeah, well, I've got a few noted down as my favorite Bond girls, but we, we discussed how th- this section should be called, ooh, sexist. Uh, but you know, she, she would be very near the top of my list as, as one of my favorite Bond girls, but she's written as a, as a ditz, unfortunately. She's, she's, uh, mm. she looks lovely, but, but like you said, she's a catalyst for, for certain events happening. And uh, she doesn't come out of it looking particularly bright. She is more the damsel in distress compared to a Melina from For Your Eyes Only who has a crossbow and she's looking for revenge because her parents have been killed. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, a lot of various Bond girls, particularly as the series went on after more too, they had more of a a personal uh, motivation like their characters. But you just had to look pretty back in the day, you know. Um, Mm. That's that's one of the curses of the the early seventies stuff. Well, I will say this though, Matt. Um, Maud Adams, one, she's she's stunning. She looks fantastic mm. in this film. Her her statuesque death. Well, she's already dead. I found yeah. that to be quite harrowing, as in yeah. a, a really really intense visual, because she is like a doll, right. and and when uh, obviously Maud doesn't. And the film Guy Hamilton, they don't, they don't linger on it, 
But just that mm. image of her eyes wide open in that, yeah. uh, I think they're kickboxing, aren't they? It's like uh, a Muay Thai. Muay Thai, uh, Muay, uh, Muay Thai yeah. Um, Muay Thai. I thought, I thought that was fantastic. I thought that was really, really visually quite harrowing and quite strong. That, that invokes like this, this thing of, uh, how he got that shot as well. How did Scaramanga get that perfect shot? to kill her instantly to get her to freeze and then he says oh it's a difficult shot but quite satisfying yeah um sorry my christopher lee sounds exactly like my roger moore <laughs> but uh <laughs> which you know maybe is what they were that's going what for, they're maybe. going for yeah and uh, yeah so she yeah she's frozen exactly like a doll it, it is a, a disturbing image because she's very lovely in it she gets treated quite poorly by him earlier when uh there's there's two scenes in this movie that moore has lived to regret Mm. And, and one he didn't he didn't want to do either but because of the the nature of the script and uh, the filmmakers they went ahead and did it the the first was the the arm bar and the the slap yeah uh when he's interrogating her there are other ways to to go about that and he didn't feel like that was the bond that's that he a, wanted that's to a connery bond move yes that's yeah, what exactly. that is and, and and the other one was um the throwing the tie boy in the in the river, which he didn't want to do. But we, as we've said, it's awful, but it does raise a giggle. Oh, well, uh, yeah, I, okay. So I will agree with Rog on, on armbar and the slap. I, you can't take <laughs> out the tie boy getting thrown out. I mean, just only because it is so, it is so funny. And having been to Thailand <laughs> and uh, never, never having thrown a tie boy in the river, but having people <laughs> come up to me constantly asking for yeah. a tuk tuk or if I want a new suit in the fucking raging heat that I don't <laughs> want a new all morning suit right now or asking me if, uh, you know, I want a massage or anything like that. This is only in Bangkok, by the way. Um, yeah, mm. I loved Thailand, but I just found that really funny because there were times when I was hungover, but I wish I could just throw them in the river. <laughs> you are a very handsome man, 40 bar. For you, mister, 20 baht. I'll tell you what, Sonny, I'll give you 20,000 baht if you can make this heap go any faster. 20,000 baht. I'm afraid I have to owe you. Bloody tourists, 20,000 baht. As far as the character, it, it's, it's not very Bond, is it, on paper? And I can see why no. he objected, but I'm, I'm less glad about the, the, the violence against miss anders but um i i there's something about the urgency of it um and bond absolutely needs to do certain things in order to to complete his missions but this is a very blurred line between the two of them she's really done nothing wrong and um and to him anyway and in fact we find out later that she's the one who put his name on the on the bullet that actually led him there she's looking for help I think when you put it in that context that she reached out to him, mm. it's, it's a, he wouldn't, he didn't know that at that point, but it's still a dick move. And it just, it's just yeah. not befitting of the more bond, but I suppose it speaks of uh, an actor who's not yet quite fully comfortable in the role and not also probably got yet the, the weight in order to make that kind of influence over the producers. He's not quite had his stamp. His stamp on the bond isn't quite there yet. It's producer-driven still, totally. But I do think it is when we get to The Spy Who Loved Me. This is the end to the second era. This is the the Lewis Gilbert double, uh, which these these could all be done in in double bills. Um, 
which is uh, how I quite like to do them. Live and Let Die and Man with the Golden Gun is a really fun, fun double. And uh, the Lewis Gilbert uh, two are uh, The Spy Who Loved Me in 1977, followed by Moonraker in 1979. So this is uh, the second of three key stages of Bond. And I know you're quite keen on The Spy Who Loved Me, you and Alan Partridge, the greatest film ever made. Yeah, well, okay, I I won't... (laughs) I won't quite go full partridge, um, cause I think there are better films that have been made, but this is my, this is my favorite more. Uh, I, I just think it, I think he's comfortable in his, in his own skin and in the role. You know, we mentioned it in Young Guns 2, Blaze of Glory, uh, that, that Emilio in the second film, you know, the ticks are there. The, yeah. the kind of those little actor moments. I think yeah. more is, is very comfortable. There is, the trend setting continues, uh, and to the point where it's almost like a movie within a movie. I mean, the, the Lawrence of Arabia bit, I completely forgot about. With the score too, they just, they're not even ashamed of it. That's a very Gilbert thing. Uh, he does it in, um, Moonraker 2 with, uh, I think there's a Magnificent Seven moment in there. Da, 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 and they're on horses and it's exactly the same. Uh, shall I do a synopsis very quickly just to remind, uh, remind listeners? Uh, Bond couples up with Anya Amasova, aka Triple X, to thwart underwater mad lunatic Stromberg, hell bent on drowning the world with robbed nuclear submarines. 007 delves deeply into Egypt's treasures, battles metal-mouthed oaf jaws, faces off against winking helicopter babe Caroline Monroe and has an enormous machine gun and grenade-chucking battle with Stromberg soldiers. This one feels like they're pulling from older Bonds as well. It's a bit Goldfinger, isn't it? Stromberg, Stromberg's aspirations and the, his, his demeanour and manner, it, it feels a, a bit secondary to, to Goldfinger, although I know which one I'd rather watch. Bond aficionados will, will you know, beat me up for it, but... If it's a Sunday afternoon, I'd rather put The Spy Love Me on than, than Goldfinger. The thing that I really enjoyed about this film is I think we've got a step up in quality when it comes down to the director. This film has got like a lushness. There's a there's a sense that all the money is up there on the screen. And I'm thinking about his layer, you know, now this is this is obviously again, you know, rife for for parody. Um but Schomburg is is I don't find him a particularly compelling villain. Uh, no. As far as the, as far as the actor, um, he does just a lot of sitting and a lot of just uh, talking about how he wants to get everyone to live underwater. I mean, it's very... he presses a lot of buttons, doesn't he? He sort yeah. of just sits there and hits his hits his buttons. But it's but it's made up for with the fact that his uh, his kind of plan is so very very <laughs> absurd. And this is it's Doctor again, Evil. It, it is. It's do- this is Doctor Evil. I want everyone to live underwater. So I'm going to drown, I'm going to literally nuke the world. So everyone has to come down to like almost Atlantis. It's mental. Like he's got right. webbed hands, hasn't he? I mean, what's that it is, about? It's called Atlantis. He wants to call it that too. Uh, Jesus so Christ. Crazy. I mean, but, but this is a kind of absurdity that is perfect for Sunday afternoons. No, I mean, this is what Absolutely. you, and, and why I said before about this being the, the one that I think encapsulates, uh, you know, in the pre-title sequence, the Roger Moore era, this film does as well to me because mm. it's absurdist. But it's it's absurdist escapism that I am totally down for because again, there are no real consequences. But what we do have is we, we have a little bit more drama within the characters 
that that surround Bond. And I'm looking at mm-hmm. the the triple X dynamic. Well, she has motivation in the tour. We just mentioned it. She he could you have better motivation than Bond having killed her? I don't know if that if he's a fiance, but certainly a lover of hers and uh, someone she was with for a long time romantically. And then she has to face the man who who killed him. And Bond's quite cold in that moment too. He says, look, that's, that's the way this business goes. That's what, that's what can happen. And right up till the final frames where he pops the cork on the the champagne when they're in the little escape vessel, you, you wonder if she's going to take him out, but um, his charm wins through. Oh, always, always. Did you not think that uh, it was a bit pointed? The, the the actor that they got to play her fiance looked a bit lazenby but had the had the chest Ooh. of connery yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah killing off a previous lover you know it could be could be i i did have one uh observation though uh, i think on on paper this is like this is like a really really progressive and almost like the, in in correlation with the emancipation of kind of female characters just generally in cinema but especially in the Bonds with the triple X character, you know, she is the equal to Bond at this point. And that's what yep. we're setting up. And more, again, this is to think about all the criticisms that labeled against him. You can't forget that he is part and parcel of bringing Bond into uh, a kind of a new, a new era and allowing, mm-hmm. allowing audiences to accept that actually, you know what, despite his playboy antics, he is willing to share screen time and story with yeah. another, another, a, fe- a female and be equal. The only problem I had is I wish they got a better actor because she unfortunately oh, does yeah. not have any of the presence. She's not able to deliver any of the punchline gags alongside yeah. him. The, the worst of it is when they're in the truck and Jaws is attacking. I mean, Moore is mugging every two seconds and she's just looking slightly <laughs> hapless. But it, Can on it pay- play any other tunes? <laughs> he's he's <laughs> very on- sexist in that moment. Women drivers and all that. But you get yeah. a stronger female actor and she's able, and she's able then to, to sort of transcend that kind of misogyny. But she isn't. Yeah. She looks great, particularly at the end during that escape sequence. She looks fantastic and went on to marry Ringo Starr, trivia fans. Oh, well, there you um, go. <laughs> well done, Ringo. Uh, so in that, in that movie, you're right. They're trying to, to create an equal again. Um, pushing it, you know, from Scaramanga to, to a female character. And there's a great to and fro between them where she, uh, He's already looked at the microfilm and he knows that it's missing all the vital information, but she's very proud to have, have taken it off him and uh, knocked him out with that cigarette gadget that they've, uh, that they had. Um, but they're trying to one up each other and, uh, Bond does ultimately come out on top, but they are trying to, to give her more to do. And I think you're right. The, the acting could have been better and she could have been more proactive and feminist, but. In the next movie, Moonraker, you have um, Lois Childs uh, as Dr. Goodhead. And, and she has... <laughs> ignore the ridiculous name because that, that is undercutting my point completely. But she has more of a pushback against him. Uh, she resists his charms for uh, as, as long as, as humanly possible. But yeah, they, I think it's a, the Lewis Gilbert era. They were trying to bring the uh, a bit more life to the Bond girls. Yeah, I, I think Lewis Gilbert is just a, he's a better filmmaker. I think Moore is more comfortable in the role. And this feels mm. like it was written 
for Roger Moore, not written as James Bond and whoever's yeah. going to play him. Yeah, it's tailored to him. It's playing to all his strengths. I mean, the the belly button, uh, the the sort of the belly dancing stuff. I mean, it's just <laughs> yeah. kind of absurd and funny. But I was laughing. I still don't feel the jeopardy, you know, even, even when Jaws comes in as the big heavy. Here's what I feel as, as an audience member watching it is Bond again, suffering no consequences, having nothing to, to really drag him down. He, mm. he, he squashes away and, and, uh, the, the kind of, I had a wife stuff when he's, when he's having his, uh, to and throw with, uh, with triple X and, and it just, it's fun. You can go along with it and just that line in Egypt, that is my favorite line of, of more because he's, I know that he said he never raised an eyebrow, but I swear his eyebrows raised. You were quite sure I can't persuade you to stay the night. When one is in Egypt, one should delve deeply into its treasures. He, he knows exactly how daft everything he's being asked to do is. And he does mm-hmm. it with a plum. He just, he, he doesn't shy away from that. Well, it's a lightness of touch as well, because in this one, and I've read in, uh, in interviews where he says like, I play Bond as not a killer. I don't have that killer instinct, but I would, I would argue that he does. He just doesn't, um, they just don't, they don't make a point of it. So, you know, he kills, he kills Triple X's, uh, fiance right at the beginning. I mean, that's like a, it's a pretty violent death and you, and you paused on it again, you know, one of the things in the in the Roger Moore era, straight from Live and Let Die, is everyone who dies, they will give you one shot, uh, especially if it's a prominent character, where their their eyes are always open. They're not like mm. shut, mm. like a like in a Disney movie where like oh they're yeah. dead, but they look like they're just sleeping. Uh, you know, they will just give you that one shot to be like, there's your consequence, but they don't linger on it, and he never refers back to it. And it's one of the things that we don't see a lot of is. In the Craig era, it's all about him and his own personal yeah. torments and his own contradictions and hypocrisy that he has to wrangle with. Yeah. Moore plays it like the playboy Lothario who is just globetrotting. And everywhere he goes, he likes to sample the culture. <laughs> just delve into the, tre- into the treasures. He's uh, one of the problems with the Bond franchise. I don't like the word franchise, but I'll say it. Um, is that he's not fallible. You know, you, James Bond is not going to die. Uh, James Bond is going to die. And then <laughs> <laughs> Michael and his, and his parachute opens. And, uh, so, you know, you know, he's not going to die, but the first time in, in the series where I thought he, something could have thrown us a bit was the Daniel Craig moment where he's poisoned in Casino Royale. And, uh, he's about to bow out and Ava Green rescues him. That's again, in the back of your mind, you think they're not going to kill Bond, but I never felt that kind of level of tension with, with Moore or with any of the subsequent ones up until Casino Royale. You'd be surprised if Moore's hair falls out of place. I mean, it just right. doesn't, it just does not happen. <laughs> You're in critics corner again. They said he doesn't want to get his suit dirty was one of the quotes <laughs> they gave. Okay. So how about, um, Gilbert too. Shall we do, um, Moonraker? Let's do Moonraker, the, the Star Wars one. Um, as yes. they, uh, they as rushed they this say. through, I heard, because, uh, of the, the craze, uh, and the commercial success of Star Wars. Um, they rushed through a space movie for Bond. So, uh, Drax, a Ricky Gervaisian Jeremy Beadle-like lunatic who's planned to nerve gas planet Earth from space using a toxin deadly to humans but harmless to animals 
and start his own master race consisting of only the best specimens. Uh, Bond and undercover CIA agent Dr. Holly Goodhead, an, ana- <laughs> an Amazon anaconda duel, uh, waterfall boat chase and intergalactic laser war and more jaws. Uh, but he's a goodie at the end this time. There's a heel turn or a face turn. I'm never sure which one it is. Is it, uh, he's a bad guy turning good. Uh, face turn, I think. Heel turn is when they go good to bad. But I mean, wrestling, wrestling fans, you know, please tweet us because I could be wrong. Yeah. Get in touch. Uh, yeah. So sorry, that wasn't a great synopsis, a very brief one, but yeah, this one was, uh, the, the second of the Lewis Gilberts. This wasn't one that you, you had a chance to revisit. Have you ever seen? I, ha- I've, I saw it again in my preteens with my dad. Um, I, I've got to say just, I'm going to have to defer to your knowledge and expertise on this one, but it never one that has been one of my favorites. I think it's because this feels like the, the more film that most feels like Austin Powers. Yeah, this is one that's not been one of my favorites. And, and it was strange as well, because as much as Jaws has been such an iconic kind of heavy, I never loved him so much that I would want him to come back and then turn good. And, you know, I guess you could argue was he played like a sort of, not a simpleton, but somebody who <laughs> just fell in with the wrong crowd and... <laughs> <laughs> a Jaws backstory. We'd get an origin story these days. We'd have a bunch spin-off. He'd be an agent for good and, and actually, you know, someone, someone ripped out his teeth and molded on metal ones and yeah. he's driven by that pain. And it, all that kind of stuff, I just never really, <laughs> I just saw him as a very, very cool, heavy that Bond will have to dispense of, not physically, mm. but using his, using his wits. So, um, I found that strange, but, but also the poster, the, the fact that it's called the Star Wars. I will go back and watch it though, because I do feel I'm probably being super dismissive. You're, you're right. It's very silly. And this is one that people disregard very easily that there's a, uh, <laughs> he's going through Venice on an inflatable gondola at one point. And there's one moment where there's a guy drinking wine and, uh, he kind of looks at his bottle of wine as if to say, is this really happening? This happens a lot in the Morbons that the drunk spectator that can't believe what he's seeing. And then this is where Lewis Gilbert jumps the shark. He, he's, there's a pigeon and the pigeon does a double take of Bond on a gondola. So that's one of the silliest moments in any Bond film, certainly in, in the Moore series. And I think Octopussy has, has the only thing that's remotely similar with an, uh, a rickshaw pursuit. And there, uh, it's kind of a tennis themed thing. Uh, I can't remember exactly what's happening, but they're hitting back and forth with, uh, with tennis rackets. Uh, so yeah, you, you're right. It's this vast tonal shift thing is, is a problem. Um, but I would, I dispute it a little bit because I think people do get it. They, they misremember it slightly because there are some really dark moments in Moonraker. There, there's, um, there's a character, Corrine Defoe. Um, she gets, uh, she, she tells Bond, um, or, or he cracks the safe in her room and she kind of sleeps with him and allows him to go through this, this process. And she gets tracked down and, and torn apart by Rottweilers. So anyone saying that this is the, the, the most just frivolous and fun 
entry, you know, there's, there's another quite scary scene where Bond is in uh, a centrifuge. Uh, they're testing the, the G force and, uh, one of, uh, Drax's henchmen gets in control of it. So it's spinning around at a ridiculous degree and most people pass out around seven G's, but it keeps going and going and going. And poor Roger Moore's face is all contorted the G force and everything. So he has to find his way out of it. Uh, Jaws is particularly scary, physically intimidating. There's a, there's a scene where he, um, goes after one of, one of my favorite Bond girls, Manuela in, uh, um, in Rio. And he's got this big scary clown costume because they're part of a, a parade that he's, that he's hiding in. So anyone who thinks it's, it's disproportionately comedic, I think they're misremembering uh, a lot of it. And if they watched it again, they'd actually, and, and also the, the villain's plot, it's, it's Hitler-esque. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, that start, was going to say it's Aryan race stuff, isn't it? I mean, that's, yeah, he wants to, uh, to start a master race. And, and that's, that's where the, uh, the face turn happens where Jaws, uh, Bond very cleverly triggers Jaws by saying, uh, so, uh, this master race, uh, anyone who doesn't live up to your standards will be, exterminated and Jaws realizes that he's he's this freak of nature and there's no way he's going to have a place in this new utopia so he, that's when he turns and and ends up attacking attacking Drax so yeah it's it's a particularly interesting one and one that I watched endlessly as a kid I loved it well I will watch it again because I'm curious to know if when Roger Moore is in that centrifuge whether or not he turns into Popeye as I've misremembered <laughs> from, yeah, from the, the Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> There's some great stuff. Uh, other highlights in that one are um, an encounter on a cable car, again in, in Rio, where uh, Jaws is attacking uh, Bond and Dr. Goodhead. And there's a, again, it turns very comedic and, and Jaws gets a girlfriend as well. So if you want to see Jaws, um, you know, with the love of a good woman changing even the, the freakiest of, of the, and, and the most evil of the, the Bond henchmen, uh, and any man can be turned. Well, I guess, I guess, Matt, for, for a lot of people, the, the threshold is met because of the, the element of space and Bond going to mm. space. So, you know, Leprechaun's been up there. Uh, Jason Voorhees has been up there. Yeah. Does, does James Bond belong in space? Or should it just be the Muppets that stay there? For me, the, the sequence was actually quite amazing, uh, particularly as a kid, that there's a scene where the American astronauts uh, uh, are taken up like a almost a SWAT team of uh, intergalactic kind of... Uh, the, the Americans are going to try and stop, stop ja- uh, Drax, whose uh, space station is... Uh, uh, yeah, they, they try and infiltrate it. And there's a big laser battle between the two and if i remember correctly there are different colored lasers but i may i may be wrong they're definitely wearing different colored jumpsuits so you can kind of uh and and spacesuits so you can differentiate but they're just floating around and but the idea of bond in space i see what you mean about the trope of uh and and i said it like the idea of jumping the shark it's it's it feels like sometimes i've said it before you have to go beyond the line to realize where it belongs and uh that leads us very well into the next one because it, as ridiculous as moonraker is um by the time the john glenn era came round uh f- fans had rebelled against the overly comedic moonraker which again i disagree with 
uh, and what resulted is is quite a dire entry in the in the series in the first John Glenn film uh, for your eyes only. Are you familiar with that one? I am not. No, no, nobody is as far as I know. I never watched that one as a kid. Um, I collected all the Roger Moores, but that's not one I remember fondly at all. The only thing I remembered was the assault on Christatos's uh, castle. This is the Greek one. You might be into this one. The oh, maybe I'll Greek. go back. Yeah. Oh, it's Greek. Uh, the is love he? interest. <laughs> love interest is Greek. He's not really Greek. It's uh, um, oh, Greek separate. Is he? I, no, I want to say Julian Glover. Is that right from uh, Last Crusade? Um, he's uh, he's the villain, but he's playing Greek. And, uh, the love interest, Melina is Greek or playing Greek. Uh, Carol Bouquet, I think she's called, not Hyacinth Bouquet. Um, so this is the first in the John Glenn series for your eyes only. This was 1981. And, uh, this is in my mind clearly the weakest entry. And I think it came from the rebellion against, um, Moonraker. They forgot to make it fun. Um, so they just stripped everything back then, did they? What they did, yeah, they stripped out the gadgets and they stripped out the humor. But I mean, again, this is a total misconception. If you watch it, the, the film ends with Margaret Thatcher talking to uh, a talking parrot, and the the humor is misjudged. It's not funny. It it never quite uh, plays the way the Lewis Gilbert entries did. Uh, one thing I noticed was it was lacking in. Um, a theme as well, the Bond theme, not a story theme, but the, the, the music, it, it was just absent throughout. So you get these sequences, there's car chases and there's a, a sequence underwater that was strangely reminiscent of inner space where they're in like this pod. And do you remember in inner space where Mr. Igo goes in? He's like a Terminator style character and he comes down in a, in a suit to attack. Dennis Quaid and he's trying to drill into the um the little craft that uh it's all that uh it's it's exactly the same sequence but all done underwater um but the it has no momentum uh the, there's a strange subplot with uh a, an Olympic gymnast called Bibi Dahl who isn't a love interest because she's too young Bond said that she was she was written as a 16 year old but she has a crush on on Bond and she's snogging Roger at times and he's having to push her away. Uh, and I'm not en- entirely sure. I can see what they're trying to, may- or maybe they're trying to just rekindle people's love for the Bond. So you, you chuck in sycophants, but maybe don't pick a 16-year-old girl. Maybe go for a young boy, trouble boy or something. So everyone can, you could probably go with that. She's not particularly sexualized outside of, just being in, in gymnastics clothes, you know, it's, it's, it's not sinister or anything, I don't think, but it is, it's, he's slightly in Lolita territory because he's getting on at this point. He's, uh, he's of advanced age at this point. This is the third to last entry. Are the liver uh, spots would... starting to show, are they? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the, the cool things, I'll, I'll say some positives because I'm, I'm really down on this one. I, I do not enjoy it. Uh, the best part of the movie is the opening sequence where uh, Blofeld returns, uh, one of the classic Bond villains. And uh, he's got a, 
um, a remote control helicopter that Bond is, is trapped inside and he's flying it around. Uh, so the aerial stunts there, the practical aerial stunts are very good. Um, there's some very strange soft rock synth going on, uh, in, a. Uh, oh, I should give, I'll give the synopsis first and then I'll, and I'll do, do my very brief highlights because there aren't many. Uh, when Melina's parents, namely her marine archaeologist father, are murdered by a Cuban chap in a seaplane, Bond takes over recovery duties of the ATAC communication system. In this one, there are, uh, ski jump pursuits, motorcycle tobogganing, ice hockey whackings, Charles Dance, yay, and uh, yay. a guy that looks like uh, Jurgen Klopp in a dune buggy, uh, an underwater inner space duel, and a mountain climbing siege on the villain Christatos's castle. Uh, so my favorite stuff here is uh, some of the action set pieces. Uh, Bill Conti's music is kind of interesting, but I, I'm missing the Bond theme at times. Uh, it disposed of a lot of the humor to try and pull back some creative, pull back some credibility. Uh, but I put it in the category of not being daft enough through, through the stripping of all that stuff. It, it, it came out a bit dull, unfortunately. Well, Matt, having no memory whatsoever of it, is it, when I say stripped back, is it more reminiscent of the, the down and dirty seventies? movies of a Scorsese or or a Coppola has it got that vibe or is it or am I just way off is it just that it, they've they've seems seemingly missed the point because when you I didn't realize Blofeld was in it it's only the opening sequence well because I always just think that every time and I thought this of Spectre as well that the moment you bring him in to me it's a red flag it just it tells me that the You're out of ideas the, the, yeah the producers the screenwriters are like we don't have anything. Just bring back Blofeld. Mm. Cause that it, it's recurring. You only have to look at every single Bond era when they try and bring him in or even mm. point towards him, whatever. It just, there's a, there's an element of desperation. And I thought that of Spectre, which is why I really, I didn't enjoy it anyway, cause I thought it wasn't very good. So when you say that now, I'm maybe I'm just confirmation bias on my own thoughts, but I'm just thinking, well, that, mm feels like they ran out of ideas so they just wanted to reset but they didn't want to change the bond because maybe it sounds like maybe they should have gone with a different actor at this point this was the time this would have been the chance this would have been the chance to to flip it but he did three more and that's what makes the john glenn's really interesting i i think that trilogy on a sunday is fantastic even though i don't particularly like for your eyes only if you're a completist you can get that in and then you can get octopussy in about between three and six uh, or three and three and five or four and six in the afternoon. And that's the perfect slot for it. But this one, this is the first time I started to draw parallels to indie because Raiders of the Lost Ark came out in 81 and For Your Eyes Only came out in 81. And it is a different world. It, you know, Raiders is a masterpiece and this thing is, it's just junk compared to that. This is where, uh, Spielberg and Lucas, and there's talk of them saying, I want to make a Bond film. Or Spielberg saying, I want to make a Bond film. And then Lucas saying, I've got something better. And he wasn't wrong because they've, they've taken the tropes and they've really done something infinitely better. Um, that this is, um, it, it's a bit of a shame. I, I do like the closing, um, at siege on, on the castle. Uh, there's some cool rock climbing stunts. Um, but this, this one is 
my relationship with it is quite superficial. I don't have too much investment in this one, despite loving more, you know, um, I, I think, you know, it, it is Julian Glover as the bad guy who went on to play Donovan in Last Crusade. So again, they, they nicked a lot and they also nicked some sidecar bike chase ideas from this one. Uh, some of the action sequences will be regurgitated later in some of the indie installments. Um, so yeah, this, this one, uh, I can't recommend this one, uh, unless you're a completist. Um, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put this one forward as one of more strongest at all. Well, I'm happy to move on then. <laughs> if okay. That's the case. Only because it sounds, <laughs> it's, it's, it just sounds like, uh, it sounds like it would have been an o- ideal opportunity to maybe pass the, the baton on. Um, but mm. then interestingly, they pivot back. So, you know, sometimes you need to make the, the flat one to realize what you've got. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, that's, that's kind of what happened because Octopussy is silly again. And that's what I wanted. And I think that's what fans wanted. Even the name. Uh, I mean, just the name. <laughs> it's, it, 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 it conjures up all sorts of imagery, but the fact that it's yeah. called Octopussy, it just, yeah, it immediately puts a smile on my face. I'm just smiling now, just saying the word Octopussy because I don't, I rarely get a chance to say it <laughs> in normal life. Well, here we go. Here's a reminder of what goes on. Fabergé egg chasing galore in this one as Bond infiltrates Octopussy's circus troupe or cult. Um, Baddie Prince, Kamal Khan and his dice crushing henchmen that we talked about earlier. Um, they're all there, uh, in, in order to prevent nuclear war at the hands of a renegade Soviet general Orlov. Um, 007 slides down banisters, hides in a gorilla suit, disguises himself as a crocodile, squashes spiders, and swings through the jungle like Tarzan. So continuing from what we were saying about Steve and George pinching from Bond, there's so much stuff here that they took for Temple of Doom because it's set largely in Delhi. So this is the uh, Indian-themed Bond um, so Temple of Doom was one year later. Uh, Kamal's palace resembles Pancot Palace. Uh, there's a scene with a stuffed sheep's head and uh, a spider is squished. Uh, and that's very much chilled monkey brains and uh, the tunnels of bugs that, that we see. Um, but there's also another sequence that I don't know how many people would pick up on. It's not quite as, as overt as, as that, but... I, I call it the five minutes sequence in Temple of Doom where Indy's saying five minutes. No, no, no she says five, Kate Capshaw says five minutes. You'll be over here in five minutes. And they both go into their separate rooms and then there's this kind of sexual tension building. Will they, won't they come together that night? And there's almost an identical thing, uh, back and forth between Moore and his favorite Bond girl, officially Maud Adams, who returns as Octopussy, completely different character to, uh, the man with the golden gun. But, uh, again, it's, it's inexplicable, but she's very good, you know? Yeah. She comes back again, doesn't she? In an un- uncredited yeah. role, uh, in a view, a view to a kill. There's a point in, in Octopussy where a car goes through a secret door and it gets rapidly covered over. Uh, so, uh, the bad guys can't can't find it and it would and that's a really familiar sight if you've seen raiders again which is two years previous where they do the exact same visual gag mm. um so it's this question of who's stealing from who at this point 
because Raiders was so strong that I think Bond, that the makers of Bond started to look there for inspiration yeah. too. Uh, but then it, it all, it just goes back and forth. Um, there's a scene in uh, View to a Kill where all the mind sequences have a, a Temple of Doom kind of flavor to them. I guess what the, what the, the indie films were doing were they were bringing back that Saturday matinee serial type mm. vibe, like vibe, but they were delivering state of the art practical stunts and effects and i think one of the things that we've we've highlighted throughout the more era is that the effects uh, the stunt work has been you know is it's been exemplary but the Mm -hmm. one thing you can say about the indie films is that you know despite most of the time it not being harrison ford the way that spielberg shoots it the way that it is so meticulously covered Mm. it feels like indies in there and i'm thinking about like when he's on the truck and he's yeah. he's on the he's on the bonnet. That's a Bond esque sequence, isn't that it? That is a Bond esque sequence, and unfortunately, I think Bond had, had, had you know they were losing a step, not just because yeah. of Moore's age. I just don't think they had the the, the craftsmanship. And it's mm-hmm. interesting, isn't it? There's you know we've we've said we're not going to go and delve into too much trivia, but the one nugget of information that kind of you will you will it to have have happened is a Spielberg Bond because. You know, they've been coursing each other th- throughout this entire era. But he outdoes it. You know, we talked about it when we did Inception with Nolan. Um, does he really need to do a Bond when he's already made a caper slash Bond right. film? He's made Inception? his Bond in a way, hasn't he? He's, yeah. He's done so it already. Why would he, why would he be stuck with the trappings that, that come with a James Bond when you can just do one? vicariously it, it would be a case of if i do it i need to do it my way which was the tarantino uh pitch which did not go across so i, I don't think they'll go for nolan because i don't think he'll compromise and i don't think it can't be a nolan film it needs to be a bond franchise picture yeah and you could argue that uh the the scene with fastbender in inglorious bastards is the type of mm. bond that we would have got which was all mm. about whether or not because one of the things in the Bond films, everyone bloody knows who he is. So it, it, there's no point yeah. in having the James Bond 007. Everyone literally knows who he is. They know what Whereas he like, drinks. They, they know, know what he drinks. They know everything. So if he's in town, it's like he's on the case. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas at least I think Tarantino probably would have uh, probably gone in the anti-Bond. You know, all, for all the spy films that are Bond uh, influenced, there were those ones yeah. that were like, we will do everything to not be Bond, which is we'll concentrate on the espionage, we'll concentrate on the deception, and we'll concentrate on the, you know, the hiding in the shadows. Bond's out front and centre. Yeah, well, I, I don't know exactly what he would have done. All I know is that it would have been called Casino Royale, and it that's what he pitched, and it would have been done with Piers Brosnan. It wouldn't have been done with a new actor. He would have kept uh, Pierce mm. in the mm. role. So I don't know anything else about the the concept, but it was ultimately rejected, I think. Yeah. Um, another interesting thing about uh, Octopussy, it, it's much more fun if you say Octopussy, which is the way uh, Kamal Khan, uh, played by Lewis Jordan, says it all the way through. <laughs> Again, an, another weakling, quite camp uh, villain uh, who is no physical threat to Bond. Uh, but I, I, I quite like. Again though, Matt, is that, do you reckon that's in reaction to the fact that Moore's starting <laughs> to show his age? Yeah. I mean, no, I mean, yeah. but it's true though. I mean, would you have accepted a 
because look at the look at the time frame. We're now into mm. we're starting to head into eighties action juiced yeah. up action stars, Arnie, Sly, right. those types, would you have accepted that as a villain, as as the big bad against a kind of frailing, slightly more vulnerable Roger? It's very true. Yeah, it's true. Uh, th- this one leans towards um, saucy, suggestive sexual stuff. Uh, there's obviously the title, uh, mm. and then it's got the one of the, it's almost softcore, the, uh, the opening titles to this one. And then there's stuff like Bond's adolescent. It, there's a scene where uh, Q is describing something and Bond just takes a camera and he zooms in on a pair of boobs. Um, and it's, it's, you know, to everyone in the scene, it's hilarious to even to the girl he's zooming in on. She doesn't object at all. In fact, she's, she's eyeing him up as if to say, uh, oh, you know, God. hello, hello, James. Uh, there's, uh, Money Penny's, uh, younger model who's brought in, Miss Penelope Smallbone, another name oh, there that we nice, yeah. add to the list. And then very suggestive lines in this one. I need refilling is one, which is, uh, she's a, she's talking about her, uh, her champagne glass, <laughs> but, uh, more kind of, again, I'm sure he lifts an eyebrow at that point. And then, uh, Magda, another one of probably my top 10 Bond girls. She has, a uh, an octopus tattoo and he says what's that and she says uh, that's my little octopusy uh so that's another overt one and then there's a a bit of nudity where where maud adams comes out of a pool um naked as well so uh th- this one really kind of pushes sex to the to the fore uh that there's a there's a harem of uh, of women in this uh, octopusy cult uh kind of circus troupe so, uh, yeah, there's, there's lots of, uh, lots of ladies in this one. So Roger was very, very at home, I think. Well, they're going back to the playbook, which is, I think the right instinct. If you still got Roger Moore about, I mean, you know, you're saying mm. that they're really pushing it. Well, everything you've described there sounds like everything <laughs> that I saw in the Moors that I, in the early Moors that I was, I've yeah. watched in preparation. So, you know, Maud Abbins in a shower popping out and, and hit, hit the gleeful, yeah grin on roger moore's face oh when, and gold when gun just, he, when he, yeah he when he's, when he's just towel, but he's just watching yeah, it he, and then and then yeah. they have the reverse shot of him looking at it in the mirror as she clearly yeah. as she was clearly getting changed so all of that is still they're just looking at different ways of, of executing the same gag and and again it's mm-hmm. all about the fact that he ends everything on a punchline you know i think in mm-hmm. the shower sequence it's like water pistol (laughs) yeah yeah it doesn't mean that it ends up feeling like a safe space because as i say with 2021 eyes i think a lot of people could go back and watch some of this and just think oh the latent misogyny yeah but it feels like everyone's in on the gag i guess that's the thing you know there is objectifying of women but i I would say that of all the bonds in fact Mm -hmm. go the pierce era has some of the most egregious stuff as well. Mm. It's just that it, it's under the veneer of kind of a pr- more progressive viewpoint. Mm-hmm. I think the more era, essentially the formula has been, you know, it's on the chalkboard. They're following it. They know it. And again, he's comfortable. This is his space. One of the things I found really interesting in, in kind of looking back at Roger Moore in interviews is, is how kind of, um, 
self-deprecating he is. Um, you know, oh, yeah. he, he would, he would, he would be the first one to say, listen, I haven't got a particularly, uh, stellar range. Um, and he would, he would argue he's not a particularly great actor. For me, it doesn't matter. You know, did I look to Arnold during his high points for emotion? Did I yeah. look to him to emote? No. <laughs> you know, I'm watching a persona. I'm watching a star. And sometimes you don't need to have the, the greatest acting chops. You know, the, one of the things that Daniel Craig really did bring was somebody who was able to delve deeper into the character. And be a little bit more internalized. I thought you were going to say Egyptian treasures again. Oh, and maybe, maybe in no time to die. I don't know. Maybe. Well, there's uh, this idea of him being a cheesy uh, or, or a hammy actor, which I object to. Um, he, he does play down his performances uh, and he's very self-deprecating. You're right. Um, he, I think the series benefits from, from his humor. Um, and I, I think it owes something to this. He was, he was playing a crime fighter and a playboy, uh, Simon Templer in, in The Saint and even directed some, some episodes. And there's some stuff there where he looks directly into the camera and he, he's, he's doing everything but winking at, at the audience. And it's all, it's all queued up for him. Like you said, Spiral of Me was, was, uh, like a, a made to measure suit for him but for, for some reason he can get away with more than some of the other bonds with me if the exact same things happen with with pierce well uh you know what you you've hit on something there because i've just had a flash forward flash back there's a scene in the world is not enough when he pierce is seducing a doctor and for whatever reason it's more would do it in fact one of his great gadgets, the magnetic watch. Um, when he unzips, uh, Miss Caruso the, in Live Miss and Let Caruso, Die. Yeah. In Live and Let Die. Perfect. Works. Mm-hmm. Pierce does something similar, but he doesn't have a, an amazing watch. He just unzips her skirt and, and it falls down mm-hmm. and it feels, feels a bit sleazy. A bit sleazy. Yeah. And, 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 and I guess it's hard. It's apples and oranges. You could argue it's apples and oranges. It's different actors, different scripts, different eras, but more. Mm. I, I just, I look at more as, as the Adam West of Batman. Like there <laughs> yeah. is no one else can do Adam West and no one else can do Roger Moore. Yeah. In that lane, you can't top it. Uh, uh, just before we get. Finish before we finish with Octopussy. There's uh, some really unusual tone shifts in this one too. Probably the most since Moonraker. Uh, this one's got a face hugger octopus. Um, Bond gets startled by a chimpanzee, which is particularly funny to me. I don't know why. Uh, he he hides behind a fat bloke at one point. Uh, he, uh, there's a scene where he, he gets down on the ground to avoid machine gun fire and does a double take, uh, because he's next to a tiger headed rug and he gets frightened by the fake tiger head, which is very funny to me. And one of my favorite moments, I've, I've got two here from Octopussy that are just gold. I sent them to you earlier in, in the chat. The, the, uh, first is the le- now legendary AK 47 banister slide where he he slides down um, the banister and machine guns a lot of bad guys but he has to take the end off the the banister before he crashes his uh his balls into it uh and then 
my one of my absolute favorites is where he's in a train carriage and he's uh disguised himself as a gorilla he's in a, a fake gorilla costume and he's kind of uh <laughs> bumping into things and that's that's as close as you get to a nod and a wink i think it's very silly and uh the film itself ends with uh i think it's Maud adams uh it could be dubbed her accents are all all over the place. I'm not too sure, but it ends with a che a very cheesy exclamation of James, and then the credits roll at the end. It's it's a it very overtly hitting all of the beats and doing it shamelessly. And I think so. Moonraker took it too far, and then it really dropped off with Fiore Eyes Only. And now this was their attempt to kind of give the fans what they wanted again. Well, I mean, you've, you've sold me. I'm going to watch Octopussy tonight. <laughs> I mean, anything, unfortunately, I'm, I'm really simple. Anything with a monkey, <laughs> uh, will get me, will get me hive some. <laughs> that, that was, uh, that was probably my favorite rewatch this week. Um, there again, there's a lot of Bond stuff. Uh, sorry. There's a lot of indie stuff in there. And, uh, the other person to mention is Stephen Burkoff who is total ham and cheese throughout. He's chewing the scenery. Well, when is, when is, when isn't he? I mean, Christ. He, he's let off the lead here. He's, he's really going for it. Um, so yeah, that, that takes us to, uh, the final one, the, uh, the, the third in the John Glenn trilogy of you to a kill. This is 1985. This is Moore's final entry. Uh, here's the synopsis. Nazi descendant maniac ex-KGB agent and microchip guy Max Zorin, played by Christopher Walken, is planning Operation Mainstrike, which will send Silicon Valley to its knees by triggering a massive San Francisco earthquake. Uh, in, an, in an effort to stop the madman, Bond skis to the Beach Boys, almost falls off the Eiffel Tower, dangles from an unlocked fire engine ladder, and makes a quiche. So <laughs> more making a quiche. If that doesn't tempt you in, then I don't know. What mm. I think this was the one where it, it, it really did feel like the villains, you know how in Batman returns, everyone kind of thought there's not enough Batman and we're really concentrating on the villains here. I, I think mm -hmm. one, because they've got Christopher Walken, who is, uh, just at this point, he is hot really yep. hot um so they're very much like give walking time to do his thing but you've also yep. got grace jones but c would, would you mind because this is the first time chris and walking has come <laughs> up on the show would you mind if i just recite good night moon um of course yeah yeah because it's my favorite look maggie christopher walken's reading good night moon good night room good night moon good night Cow jumping over the moon. Please, children, scooch closer. Don't make me tell you again about the scooching. You and the red chop chop. We've hmm. mentioned it more. I mean, how old is he now in this one? Fifty-seven. He's too, he's too old. I mean, and, and this, yeah, he can. <laughs> I, I remember as well. Again, in an interview where he said, you know, it's starting to look a little lecherous, and it 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 is. You know, I remember watching this one so many times, uh, because I loved Grace Jones and I love Christopher Walken and I really enjoy this one, but it isn't a James Bond film, really. He's kind of not sidelined, but he's just not able to do the things that he was able to do. What it sounds like, even in Octopussy, 
which is a real shame because in a way, you know, you're, you're only as good as your last performance on stage. And, and I think it really did harm him because this was the enduring memory for a lot of people, which is, Oh God, more it's tired. Like the, the act is tired. The form too many tired one too many. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, give this to a new bond, beef up the role, maybe give him a, go for a different type of direction. Cause I actually think the villainous plot and the, the Grace Jones element means that it feels vibrant. It feels fresh that, that mm-hmm. section, that part. But unfortunately, yeah. everything that Moore brings just feels like it's, it's outran its race. I wonder if he did seven because that gave him the record officially. That's more than Connery. One thing we haven't mentioned is all of Roger Moore's films made money. Some made more, some made less, but they all made money. They were all successful. Um, and they all maintained the Bond brand for, you know, over a decade. So it, it, it's, it's one of those things where, I felt like they felt they obliged to give him the record. And, and in a way, sentiment got, got in the way of, of real sense, which is, I think Octopussy was your, your last one, Rog. Maybe come in and do a cameo or something. That would have felt like leaving on a high with, with Octopussy, but more so than, than going out with View to a Kill. But I, I enjoy it. Again, this was one of the ones I picked up on VHS pretty early and uh i like the john glenn entries and i actually think you know he's the second unit director on some of the earlier ones i think i want to say spy who loved me um but he he learned a lot i think and and he managed to put together really neat entries in the series with the exception for me of for your eyes only there's uh this one's quite saucy john glenn loves boobs that there's no way around it i mean every time he's credited it's boobs and uh, he loves to sneak nipples in as much as possible. Uh, for your eyes only, I think, like actual nipples in Bond films uh, within the scenes, not even within the opening uh, title sequences. He's he's getting nudity into the actual film. So he's a he's a saucy director. Um, this one's got some interesting stuff. Uh, Last Crusades, uh, Alison Doody makes a again funny name, but uh, she makes a, a good impression. Like in a, in a few moments, she plays uh, Jenny Flex, uh, and also there's a <laughs> there's a she's kind of an equestrian. Uh, she's not really a Bond girl, but she she's one of Zorin's uh, stooges, I think. And there's another interesting. Uh, she's kind of mates with uh, Papillon Susu, who was in uh, Full Metal Jacket as the uh, not the motorcycle hooker, but the uh, the miso horny. Yeah. Hooker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she, she's in this one too. But the, the most, one of the most interesting characters is probably Mayday, Grace Jones. Oh, yeah. Who's, uh, not really a Bond girl. She's, uh, no. she's a tad overpowering. Well, Grace uh, is her own woman. And, uh, and I think that would also be said of her character in this film. I don't yeah. think she, she doesn't, she doesn't do Conan. She's like, I don't care if I don't fit into Conan and I don't care if I don't fit into Bond. It's like, if you've we got me. We said earlier, it's just, yeah, yeah just roll the, the camera and, and we, we're just going to hope that we get something that we can cut in. Uh, there's a Dolph Lundgren, uh, cameo. Um, yeah, she's more of a henchwoman than a, a Bond girl, although she does sleep with, with Bond. I just, I just found that to be quite like, well, they have a tension. Yeah, not shocking is the wrong word because that makes it seem like I've lived a sheltered life. But it feels like, wow, that's like 
quite pointed. But they, again, they, they play it both like this is no big deal, but that, that in itself breathes power into the moment. It's like, wow, like, you know, we, I said it earlier with live and let die, but you know, for the longest stretches, Bond will go pretty safe with Bond girls and who Bond gets with. And, you know, we've talked about it before on the show, but media does matter. And if you're coming fresh into these kind of films and maybe this is your first Bond, you know, this is, this is quite, it's edgy. Know, this is quite, it's quite edgy. This is quite topical. And Grace Jones, like she's getting with Roger Moore. There's the match that you wouldn't have put. <laughs> well, by all accounts that they weren't keen on each other, uh, but not that it matters. It's in, in the film, the interesting thing about the Mayday character is it carries over from uh, what they did with Jaws with the face turn. Again, uh, Mayday ends up uh, sacrificing herself to to kind of uh, hinder Zorin's uh, evil plot, so um, yeah, she redeems herself. She she turns into more of a Bond girl as the film goes on. But for me, you know, it was always a bit of a stretch to 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 be attracted to Grace Jones. It was a, it was a bit of a bridge too far. Uh, she's you know well, very she, she just she destroyed <laughs> me and you. <laughs> yeah, she she can bench press a guy like no no problem. Um, so. Here, like, uh, there's one really cool thing in the soundtrack that I like. There's one bending guitar note that's very guitar driven. Um, so the, the opening scene kind of apes Spy Who Loved Me. It opens with a, a ski chase, uh, and it's done incredibly well. Uh, it ends with, uh, a Zeppelin, uh, skyship battle. Uh, there's a lot of dangling from ropes and battling on the, uh, Golden Gate Bridge, which is kind of an iconic, uh, thing now. And that is the, that's the, the lasting image for me of the film yeah. is the, is the battle on the Golden Bridge. The Zeppelins, um, maybe it's just because speed is harder to, to scale when there's nothing mm. behind it, but there is something deeply unexciting about uh, Zeppelins yeah. fighting each other, but right. maybe it's just not very cinematic. I'll just leave it there. Hmm. Uh, and our, our Bond girl who, uh, died recently, I think, uh, Tanya Roberts, who's also in that 70s show as kind of the, the ditzy mum character. Um, she, she's the Bond girl here. She's a, an ex playboy, uh, model. And, and at, you're right. At this point, Bond is 57 and more is 57 and, uh, it's a little bit of a stretch. Uh, so you, you could be right. Perhaps it was done to crack that record, but I do feel like going out on Octopussy would have been a stronger note to, to bow out on. But nevertheless, I would recommend uh, View to a Kill. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I do enjoy it. I just, um, I feel like his powers are waning and it's, you know, normally a lot of films, especially films that have, you know, a series of movies or sequels. Um, mm. Sometimes it will come out in the production or the, a behind the, se- behind the scenes kind of documentary. You know, I don't think anyone when they watched Alien 3 would have known the turmoil that Alien 3 went through to no. get to that point until after the fact. And then you go back and then David Fincher becomes David Fincher and everyone goes, well, what about that alien film that he did that wasn't <laughs> that great? Like, he's a great filmmaker. Why? And then you kind of learn that. Unfortunately, I feel like it's really quite obvious when you're watching this that Roger is, you know, he's just, he's 57. I mean, it's a, mm. it's a physical, it's a role that requires a certain degree of physicality. 
And you have to believe that the person on screen can woo women and it feel like you're not, you know, watching something that's kind of a little bit dirty. And at this point, it just, you can't visually get past the fact that when he's in bed with Grace, his neck has got like eight rolls in it. Like, it's just can't get around it, can you? It's just like, yeah. oh man, that's, he's really, this is a strange really moment there. I watched it like this afternoon. There's a strange, he kind of, she goes on top of him and he's kind of taken aback because that, that's rare. <laughs> well, well, that's probably then, because he, she didn't tell him she was going to do that. <laughs> probably. And then he kind of grab, he grabs her arms and it, I don't know if he's acting there. I, I'm not sure if he's acting or whether that's just real, uh, Roger Moore being a little bit physically threatened by her. Uh, cause she has a battle with, uh, Walken earlier where they kind of have a tussle. Mm. And, uh, th- there's another, there's a strange dynamic, like a, a almost violent sexual, uh, thrill that's kind of going on there. But yeah, they're, they're pushing the boundaries. Yeah. Oh, God bless him. So that's the last one. Um, uh, yeah. So we, we got to the end of the, the more entries. Uh, one other thing I wanted to, to get into was, uh, well, we have Critics Corner. Do you want to do Critics Corner? Yeah. Well, why don't you, um, yeah, let's give us, give us a, an overview of, of, of where the critics lay in, in yeah. Roger's era. And then we can, we can put our thoughts to it because I think part of the objective of this episode was to give listeners, uh, and ourselves really, a kind of a fresher perspective and maybe a fairer mm. appraisal of Rog. Siskel called more supercilious, smug, prissy, a fop and a dandy to most men. Uh, what do you think okay. of that? Uh, well, it sounds like projecting. Gene's is he projecting, projecting his own insecurities again? Uh, okay. Yeah. I, I, smug. I, yes. He's not as smug as Connery. I think Connery's smugger but, than, but him. I would Ooh. say there is a, a lighter touch to, to Rog. And actually his smugness is actually part of his charm. The fact yeah. that he's a little bit of a Lothario. So smug <laughs> is probably the wrong word. I think Gene's just again, unfortunately, Maybe he's having trouble back at home. I don't know, but it just seems like he's not got a problem. Did he ever think about that? Maybe the character is smug. Yeah. Uh, he said that he's too pretty to be attractive to women. Okay. <laughs> the cat makes no sense. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think women like pretty men, don't they? Uh, he's not rugged enough. This is his point. I think this is what he's trying to say. He said he's not rugged enough to be convincing as a secret agent. And uh, he looks like he doesn't want to get his nice suit jacket dirty. Mm, monsters. Uh, but Connery does. Yeah, he's a monster. Uh, so he'd argue that Connery was more rugged and more manly. Uh, well, I I, well, I, and, and, and this is, this is the, the point of does every bond need to be an alpha? Right. I don't know. You know, and maybe, maybe when we give five minutes to where we think bond will go after we've gone through critics corner, Maybe mm. Bond's a beater. I don't know. That will trigger a, at least fifty percent of the world, <laughs> yeah. but I don't know. Everyone like that becomes a simp. But yeah, you're right. You've got to do something. Um, uh, Ebert agreed on Connery, and he took the elder statesman Bond connoisseur stance of Goldfinger and From Russia with Love at the top two. And he's right; they're the classiest entries. But From Russia with Love is actually a really brilliantly done bond film that's my favorite connery thankfully ebert fell fell on my side a little bit and argued that moore's take on bond fits this brief of what was then the new era 
And this whole idea of the clean suit jacket is actually an in-joke that Moore and the makers are completely aware of. We talked about the winking and nodding. And I, I think he's perfectly aware of, of what he's being asked to do. And uh, he's very comfortable in in that character, you know, portraying it that way. I'm going to get into my summary, if you don't mind. Yeah. My final thoughts on, on Rog. Sir Roger Moore, you know, God bless him. Like This is an era of Bond that I think you, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. You know, this is escapist fantasy adventure, spy thriller nonsense. You know, it's absurd. The, the villains are absurd. Their goals are ridiculous, but they, that Bond has never changed from that. The depiction of women and objectifying them, that has been a, a central idea that has ran throughout the entire series. And sometimes they're stronger. Sometimes they're weaker. Sometimes the actors that play them don't have that same kind of gravitas that are able to kind of add more flesh to the, a thinly written character. Gadgets, girls and guns. It represents something in each Bond iteration. Every actor brings something different. One of the things I noticed about the Moore era, the gadgets save him every single time. <laughs> and it, the gadget that's set up at the beginning, I'm living let die is the worst. I mean, that watch is like, <laughs> that watch <laughs> should, be, should have a license to save. It does every time he's in it. But the yeah. Moore films recognize it. And he, every time he's in a pickle, it's that's what I mean by there's no consequence because it's like aha I remember my magnetized watch so it's, <laughs> he gets himself in a scrape and he gets out of it because of one little gadget the Craig era when they rejected it in I think it was Skyfall wasn't it where they kind of like, oh, we don't go in for that kind of thing and then mm. by the next movie they're in for that thing Spectre they're back on because mm. you can't get away from it. If you want to make a serious spy thriller, he can't be James Bond then. It can't be, you know, you can't be serious for very long because inherently it is, it is daft. You know, the Jason Bourne films, they only lasted three because if you stay serious, where can you go? You're just watching the same guy fight the same people and it, it, it ceases to become exciting. It ceases to become fun because how many times do you want to watch serious Batman as well? Three films. Do you think that's why Mission Impossible got a bit more comedic as it went on? Because it got sillier. Mission Impossible, if Brian De Palma made two, three, and four, it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be an ongoing franchise. It wouldn't, they, they recognized it. I think the Fast and the Furious recognized it. Like, well, it can't just be about street racing. It's got, we've got to do something. We've got to jump the shark. And, and they, and that's where I think the more era is so influential because you only have to look at the other franchises that, and I know you don't like the word, but those long going series, if the, if the source material allows for it, then you have to lean into the slightly goofier elements of the premise. Otherwise you're, you know, you'll only watch it for so long. And I think that's why the Craig era started to move into sort of goofier territory. I do think No Time to Die will be straight down the line because that's, that's. It's a continuation the, of Spectre probably. Well, time, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hoping it isn't a continuation. I think a continuation of Spectre in plot, but I think the tone mm. will go back to a Skyfall, back to a casino. I'd like that. Because yeah. that's what Craig represents. But if he carried on, He'd have to go be, he'd have to start leaning into the goofy uh, elements. 
because Spectre mm. did that. And do we want to see that? I don't want to see him. No, do it's that. why it's why Spectre didn't work for me because it was like, well, wait a minute. So all of this built to loads of mini henchmen in this crazy, mm-hmm. and it's just like, well, no, this is daft. This is just daft in it. And then you know, because it is. So hopefully they return that, but more represents how to do it well. And he did it well for seven films. So I will say for six films, he managed to tread that very thin line between daft premise, playboy persona. And the one thing as well, I know that this summary feels like, (laughs) it was like a monologue. Um, is that, is that I think that people dump on Roger Moore because he, generationally probably represents now a kind of conflict in where we are as a culture. He's a baby boomer. He's kind of an elite elitist. He speaks like no one else speaks now. Like that is so to to my mind, people going back and watching Roger Moore might feel like, oh, that's just outdated, you know. That was when we were that was when we had fun, sex and rock and roll and that's not the world we live in now. It's all dire and cynical. Well, God bless me for wanting a little bit of lightness with my, with my world's events. So yeah, I, I will always go back to Roger Moore. I'll always go back to Pierce. We you know we didn't really talk about Timothy Dalton. He was saddled with two not particularly great scripts and mm. not particularly high stakes. Understated. Yeah, Understated. Just... And, and actually Timothy Dalton has proven in Hot Fuzz that he could easily have done the Roger Moore stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a slasher. Uh, and, I, and I must be, and I must be caught. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what about you, Matt? What about you? Come on, final, final well, appraisal on on Roger. Well, I obviously love him, but from what you were saying there, I wanted to to agree that new audiences, modern audiences, are going to find it a really difficult in. I, I think you're right. The boomer thing is, uh, it's the parlance of our times. And uh, it's it's hard to get back into it. So I, I'm just going to start with my personal rankings of the seven. Uh, my percentages are based on the categories I gave earlier. So For Your Eyes Only comes in last at 57%. Uh, Live and Let Die, 70%. Man with the Golden Gun, 73 which is, again, I looked at it logically based on those categories. And as much as I love it, it's still third from bottom in the in the seven. A View to a Kill, surprisingly high, 77. And then top three, Octopussy, 77%. Oh, jo- sorry, joint three, Octopussy and A View to a Kill. Moonraker at two with 83. And everybody's favorite, including you and Alan Partridge and probably me. Uh, uh, the Spy Who Loved Me uh, with 90%. It's the quintessential one. So that would be where I would start with more. That's where he looks the best. It's tailored for him. And uh, if you like that one, you can begin to explore some of the others. Um, I think his bonds skewer the franchise from the inside. They they know what it is. They know what it should be. And it should be a good laugh. He got it and he knew how silly it was. Like you you've said it, a secret agent whose reputation precedes him. Everyone knows who he is. They know what he drinks. They know how he drinks it, shaken but not stirred. But, uh, you know, he's recognized immediately by his adversaries. They could pick him off. No problem. Again, it's, it's, it's preposterous and it's brilliant when he does it and, and not so great when, when others do it. Um, he goes with the grain, um, not against it. Um, so yeah, 
uh, I think the line of silliness is somewhere in Moonraker. So, uh, that's the one that will probably divide people the most. Modern audiences are probably going to struggle with some of that silliness. A double taking pigeon is either your thing or not your thing. It's not even my thing, but well, I it's up there it with the raccoon in Wild Things. It is. It's one of our animal cutaways. It's not even a great performance. It, the editing is the friend of that pigeon. Uh, it, I don't think it's doing anything particularly good. Um, I would avoid for your eyes only. I'd leave that until last. Uh, it's it's the worst one. It's certainly the worst of the John Glenn three. Um, but this, the sheer enjoyability of this era is, is what it's all about for me. It lacks the darkness of some of the Conneries and the, the Lazenby entry and obviously the Craig entries, but it's, it's more of a fun, uh, kind of exploration of the character. Um, I think, uh, you, you could go, you could do Spy Who Loved Me and then go back and maybe look at the first two, Live and Let Die and Man with the Golden Gun. And that would be a good in. Um, I did it as, as a Roger Moore weekend. So I did, uh, the first four on the Saturday and then the, the three on a Sunday. And that, that lazy John Glenn trilogy, uh, where he's a bit elderly is perfect for a Sunday. Um, so yeah, um, is it true? Nobody does it better. I, I would agree. I would agree. He's my favorite Bond. Uh, and, and this is kind of a love letter to him. He's no longer with us. So this is me kind of putting a bit of a thank you out there. And, uh, he's, he's my favorite by, by a long way. And I've, I put a lot of time into the playlist for this one. So anyone, uh, wanting to, to have a look at the, the overview of Roger Moore and the man himself, n- not just the uh, Bond, but everything. Uh, he was a UNICEF ambassador and, uh, I, I think an all round, all round decent chap. So yeah, I wanted to just put something out there into the internet that was a, a, a bit of a thank you to him. So, uh, thanks for, thanks for discussing it all with me. No, Matt, it's been a pleasure and, uh, that was really quite beautiful and I'm, uh, honored to have gone through that journey with you. Uh, availability for people who do want to revisit Rog. Uh, Virgin Media is your friend here. That's the only place where it's streaming. Um, I, I would recommend the, the discs if you can get the Blu-rays. Bond 50 has probably come down now because they always update it with the new ones. So I think the most recent one on, on the Bond 50 was, uh, I want to say Skyfall. Maybe there was a, a, a placeholder left for Skyfall. I can't remember exactly, but I'm sure they've done an updated version of it now with mm. get on those more commentaries because they're terrific. And, uh, or, or you can probably pick up the DVDs very, very cheaply on their own. Fantastic. Well, um, thank you very much, Matt. Uh, for listeners of the show, if you enjoy the show, then please, uh, leave us a review, like, subscribe, spread the gospel is all we're asking, um, of the, of the Rewind Movie podcast. Uh, we would really appreciate it. Brings more people to the show, means we get good ideas because people keep tweeting me ideas for for reviews and also is it is it now time to pimp our our merch it is it is yeah so we now we have sold our soul to the devil um (laughs) and we are now selling uh rewind movie podcast merchandise including some very very fun stickers we've got uh our erotic thriller bingo bags i mean imagine going to the beach Uh, with that it's amazing (laughs) uh we've also got some 
T-shirts and oh, it's all sorts. We've got posters. Amazing. Devlin, Devlin has designed some really great shirts. Uh, you can see on Twitter, I think we've had our, our first purchase or two and there's a few pictures rolling in. Yeah, we've had a few. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, not to suggest that we're making actually any money, but, um, it's always no. nice <laughs> to spread the gospel. That's what we Yeah. Saying. We've partnered with, uh, T-Mill, uh, who are, uh, I think it's all ethically sourced and, uh, Devlin's in charge of it and he's, he's done a great job with the design. So have a look at rewindmoviecast.com forward slash shop. Absolutely. Um, for the next one, we will be going back to uh, our normal scheduling. Um, although we are entering October, so I think we might end up having to go all scary for a bit. And then eventually we will do Empire Records for those of you that are hanging on uh, for, for us to discuss that one. So I think we'll be entering our Halloween specials. Right. Well, Matt, I think it's time for us to say our goodbyes. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure and I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed, um, discussing Roger Moore and Bond and just kind of what Bond represents. Cause you know, there's a part of Roger Moore that's in all of the Bonds that have, that have come after it. So yeah, it's been, it's been a, a real fun deep dive into these movies. <laughs> yeah. um, cool. Thanks again. It was great. Yeah. I've, I've really, uh, got a lot out of my system and I'm glad it's out there. Fantastic. Well, we'll say our goodbyes. I'll be keeping the British end up. It's Gally in Glasgow, signing out. Fill her up, please. It's Matt in South Korea. Thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. Nobody does it better. Makes me feel sad.